it's all about meaning. If someone comes to work only to get paid, I mean, I, almost, I think of that almost as a crime. What am I doing to somebody? I'm eight hours of their day. I'm consuming, and only because they have to be there. That, that's a, that's a kind, of, a kind of slave ownership or something. It's awful. Hello, and welcome to the Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Martin Bish. I last spoke to Martin 10 years ago when he'd been a customer of, of mine at Rackspace and then at Pier One. And, and in those days, he was in the, uh, he ran dating sites in the UK. But I hooked up with him recently, and I wanted to talk to him on the podcast today because he is a he's a success story in a COVID world, but also he's a success story theory X versus theory Y. You know, they've what he's done is is I suppose the antithesis of Amazon. This isn't about massive sheds and treating people as robots. This is about building a distribution system for e-commerce businesses based on human beings and how do we take the best of human beings and build a business on that which drives high margin rather than trying to treat human beings like robots to drive margin into the business so fantastic conversation with martin i loved hooking up with him again after 10 years and hearing his story i hope you do too my name is Martin Bish. I'm CEO of Habu Technologies Limited. And what do you do? So right now, um, I run a fulfillment company. It's my first ever company that has physical things like people and space and so on, having run technology companies previously. So we, we essentially, we warehouse, we pick, we pack and we post on behalf of e-commerce sellers. And we've known each other in former lives, uh, where yep. you have always had companies that, that have that have had no people in them, uh, sort yes. of on purpose. So <laughs> yeah. why, what? Uh, what? Uh, why did you end up in a business that relied on human beings and not on code? I went to the other extreme first. So when we originally met, I was running dating sites. So I, I ran two of the first UK dating sites and eventually sold those. And then more recently, before this, um, I built a market research software as a service business. And I managed to do, so the dating companies, we had some staff, not many, maybe 20 or 30 at peak. And they were mostly developers, you know, kind of tech staff. But the the SaaS company, I, I had all the tech outsourced to the Ukraine. And there was just me in a tiny office in Bath. And eventually sold that to a, a private equity-backed buy and build. So I'd kind of got to the point where it was literally just me in an office. And I quite liked it. It was in the center of Bath. It's a nice little town. I could go out for long lunches. No one seemed to mind. So I didn't plan on, on suddenly finding myself in a, in a very different business like this. But I, um, I got a friend who spent 20 years uh, working for P&G in a, in a sort of logistics thought leadership role. Paul Dodd, who's my business partner uh, on this, we wanted to do something together. I was bored running the business I'd sold. He was a bit bored at P&G. And so 
we, we kind of figured out what would we do together, something in e-commerce we figured, but not necessarily fulfillment, even though it had been logistics. So we launched a few shops online to get a sense of where the pain points might be and immediately stumbled on fulfillment. It's a, it's a massive problem for lots of e-commerce companies. And so we started to explore it and just gradually found ourselves um, in this business, which I love, but it is, it is very much a people business. So there are, I think we've got about 70 staff now. So we had, we had two a year ago. Um, so it's, it is all about the people, but it's a lot of fun as a consequence. So I'm, I'm glad. That's astronomical growth. It's been exciting. Um, and then, you know, complicated <laughs> scaling a business that consists of so many people and so many moving parts is a challenge I hadn't really faced before. It was a bit of a surprise. And so what, uh, what are your 70 people doing? What, where do you, where do you plug into the value chain? Um, so we're what you call first mile fulfillment. So essentially that means that, um, if you're an e-commerce seller, you'll have your stuff delivered to us, typically shipped from you know whoever manufactures it. Might be China, and then we'll put it on the shelves. We'll integrate with all of your channels. So we we are sort of sixty percent a software company still. Software is still a big part of what we do. Um, so we integrate with all your channels. We'll integrate with the couriers, and then when an order comes in from one of your channels, one of our guys will pick it, pack it, post it, and give it to the last mile fulfillment piece, which is the courier. So that would be you know DHL or DPD or something of that kind. Aha. So you're helping people compete with Amazon? Is that how you see it? Or Well, sometimes we, we help them on Amazon. So lots of the people that we um, fulfill for are selling on Amazon. So for us, the interesting piece for us was the uncontested piece. So when we set up the business, it's because we had these small shops and we need to get fulfillment off of our plate so that we could find a problem to solve in e-commerce. And we couldn't get it off our plate, which is how we determined this was the problem. No one would fulfill our stuff. It was, it was too cheap. I mean, it had terrible margins. We weren't trying to be a shop. We were just buying, you know, I think the first thing we bought, Paul ordered boxes of milk bars, milk chocolate bars. I don't know, arbitrarily, it makes no sense at all. You can't keep it. It melts. It's like the worst possible product to buy. <laughs> but for some reason, he's, when he was looking at some, some local uh, um, stockist, he just clicked on that and we, we shipped that stuff. He wanted to be the dairy milk Well, kid. I joked that he would be the, the chocolate king of Bath because it's like to scale up you know, in a way that you don't really want it to. And so we left chocolate behind and started to sell a, a kind of few other things, but not with great margins. We weren't looking for great products. We were looking to understand where the problems were. And so when we wanted to find fulfillment, we had stuff that didn't have very big margins and we weren't doing very much, you know, 10 a day, something like that. Nobody wants it. Traditional fulfillment companies, which is all fulfillment companies, really, they have minimums. So you've got to be doing, could be two, three, 400 units a day before they'll talk to you. And then they have basket minimums. So they want to know what the cost or the value of your average basket is. And that tells them whether or not they can add their markup to what you're charging and make it viable for you. So that, that might be a 30-pound basket. I spoke to someone last week who has a 100-pound basket minimum. So you've got to be doing three, 400 units a day. And the average unit you're selling or the average basket, if people buy more than one, has to be 30 pounds, 40 pounds, 50 pounds per basket, which is a lot for kind of small e-commerce companies often run by one person two people you know kind of from their home but there are lots of them it's a huge market so we did some work um, using ons data and came up with um, the figure of a billion pounds in fulfillment revenue in the uk that no one was touching in fact the people were actively rejecting and so so you've slotted into you slotted into a gap between doing off your kitchen kitchen work service and, yes. and the big guys <laughs> with with no competition that you can see 
No, not really. So I mean, the, the, the thing is, you, you can easily kind of have a nice website and say that you're interested in that in that kind of smaller player, but you've got to price yourself into that market. Most fulfillment companies have net um, uh, margins of you know five percent, six percent. So if they halve their prices, they're just out of business. Um, so you've got to rebuild everything from scratch, which is what we did. And you can't rebuild a piece of it. So you can't become like a software seller to the fulfillment industry and make your money that way by by trying to reduce the or increase the economies of that software piece because there aren't enough economies in that software piece. So you've got to take the entire fulfillment stack from the guys in the warehouse up to every piece of software that's in the business and then the front end of the business, which is traditionally people in this business, but we built a software as a service piece to to fill that gap. And if you do all of that, if you rebuild the entire stack, then there are sufficient economies in each piece of that stack to build in the kinds of discounts that you need to, to be attractive to that one billion pound uncontested marketplace. And so is your is your goal then to own that one billion pounds or a sizable chunk of it? Or is it or is it is it actually to take the software stack back up to the guys with with super thin margins? Because you must be able to unlock unlock margin for them as well. Well, we've done it. We built the software. So instead of taking our software to them or trying to help them out, we just rebuilt everything. So we don't have any third-party software in this business. All of our systems are ours. The warehouse doesn't look like any other warehouse in the world. We rebuilt that. Ah, okay. Tell me about what, how you rebuilt a warehouse. That, that, I think, is the most interesting piece. And that was, that was, that was Paul's work. Um, so Paul had a long history of, you know, kind of thinking about this. His remit at P&G in the last few years was to save them billions of pounds a year on logistics tech. So he'd been thinking very long and hard about this, although for much larger clients, for one, one client really for P&G. So bringing that to the kind of smaller warehouse is where it began. And we spent a year rebuilding the warehouse floor. So the key is what you can't do is bring in lots of tech because tech costs lots of money. So a typical startup is, you know, if they're lucky, they're going to get somewhere between half a million and a million and a half of seed funding. And that's what they're going to spend for the first year to build their business. Now, you can't build the business on, on automation with a million quid, which is what we eventually raised as a seed round. So you've got to use people. The other reason you can't use technology to do it all is because if you're dealing with smaller players, they're much more agile and they've got a many, much more varied array of SKUs, of, of, of items that they're selling. And also our early stuff was mostly eBay, so a lot of it was secondhand stuff. So it all varied. Like right now in the warehouse, we have about 70,000 SKUs. P&G, to put it in context, has about 2,000 SKUs in the entire UK. So we had tens of thousands of SKUs, each one quite often completely unique and different from all the others. There's no hardware or software in the world, no automation tech that can do that, that can pick, pack, wrap, and you know, kind of post that kind of stuff. So for reasons of economy and because it's just not really out there, you've got to use people. So we built tech that allows us to incorporate or software that allows us to incorporate tech at any stage in, in, in the stack. So when tech becomes commoditized for a particular piece of what the warehouse does, we can plug it in then. Um, so we can make the warehouse increasingly inexpensive and more automated as time passes. But right now it has to be people. But the challenge you face with people, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, is people generally are treated very poorly in warehouses and so don't like to work in them. There's been a lot of press about a certain other big warehouse owner that shall remain nameless unless you care to name them. I certainly shan't. <laughs> just, just kind of demonstrating how difficult it is to make people happy in a warehouse. You can't pay too much because the economies won't withstand it. And if you do it in the traditional way, you're going to treat people badly. You're going to treat people like machines. And so when we started, we realized we had to have people, but we decided we would never treat people like machines. We were not going to build sweatshops. So 
Paul came up with the idea of reducing the warehouse space into what is it, what we call a micro warehouse or a hub. So even in a large space like this, so here we've got about 30,000 square feet. We've got another uh, 20,000 next door, but we'll have mezzanines here. This will be about 100. So this will divide up into spaces of between 300 and 500 square feet. These are, these are micro warehouses or hubs. A single hub manager, we don't call them warehouse operatives because they do so much more, will run that space. Now, there may be one client in that hub. There may be 20 clients in that hub if they're quite small. The hub manager will do the inbound, the outbound, the picking, the packing, the posting, and crucially, the support. So when their client wants something done or wants to engage with us about what they, how they want their micro warehouse to function, they go to the hub manager to do that. So that would be the equivalent of a picker in, in Amazon or a packer in Amazon. Picker would walk for you know maybe 10 miles a day in a large warehouse. Our guys are in their micro warehouses. They walk under they walk about half a kilometer a day, sometimes less than that. And they speak to their clients. They know why they're doing what they're doing. They know who they're doing it for. Because, you know, if they've got 10 clients, one of them is, is paying his mortgage. The other one is rent. One of them has two employees. All of this depends on them doing their job properly. They're, they're, they understand the significance of what they do. And so they like to work. So whereas the average warehouse has a sort of between 5 and 20% churn rate of staff per month, if you can imagine that, we have no churn. So, you know, we just don't lose staff or, you know, obviously the occasional person might get the job they love and they leave to do that. But broadly speaking, it's exactly the same as in the office. So people just don't leave. They love the job they do. We've made it a pleasurable job for human beings by reshaping that. But that's why, so if you're going to do that, you can't use traditional warehouse management software on a warehouse that looks nothing like a traditional warehouse. You've got to rebuild everything. So that's the key to derive the economies um, from the entire stack. You've got to change every element of the stack, which is what we did. So it took a year to do that before we um, even looked for our first customer. It, it reminds me of uh, John, who I know through Scaling Up, who, who, sold, a, who sold a call center business. And uh, he said that one of the biggest problems in the call center industry is staff turnover. And so he created a call center business which had no staff turnover and that changed the economics. And you're saying the same thing. You know, you don't have to recruit people and you don't have to train them if you're not having 20% churn every month. So there's there's a huge cost to do that. Yes, and of course we do train them. So unlike, you know, other warehouses, we have to invest in training our staff because they do so much. But unlike other warehouses, we can afford to because they stay. And so you end up with this virtuous circle where you can bring great people in, you can treat them like they're great people, invest in them, and you get to keep the great people. I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to run a business like that. So, so traditional fulfillment is just very lazy. What they do works. When eventually they can't, you know, when they can't get enough people in because of the 20% churn, they'll just plug in an agency, and that agency will just push temporary staff there endlessly. Or they close it down and they move it somewhere else. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. That's the other thing that often happens. So... <laughs> You know, we wanted to build a business that we could be proud of, and that wasn't a traditional warehouse. And it just when you're speaking, it reminds me of uh, you know the Rackspace or Pier One, where you know we had data centers, and we got the data center guys to adopt chunks of the data center. You know, so that so that people had a sense of ownership and pride, and you know, inspection, and then it then you didn't have to have all of these processes in place to try to catch people doing the wrong thing. No, but I remember that at Rackspace, I think when we joined you at Rackspace, if I'm not mistaken, you had about eight members of staff, which, <laughs> well, which when you eventually left, you know, it was, it was, I don't know what it was, 600, 700 or something <laughs> more, I'm not sure. Well, well, I was just thinking that first data center space, 
in uh, near Heathrow was 350 square feet. So when you said 350 square feet, I can imme- I can think <laughs> there's enough. I knew I knew exactly what corner of of IX Europe data center that was. But it was the same thing because I I remember now. Now this is so when we first started working with Rackspace, I had, it was 15 years ago or something like that. I, I remember the names of the people that that I was working with then. So I think one of them went went on to become. So he was a, just a tech then. Went on to become your CTO at some point, Jacques. Jack Grayling, yeah, and Hans Huberland, and you know these, you know, yeah, all these guys, individual human beings. Yeah, you brought these guys on as tech, and then you know you 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 helped them become so much more than that. Eventually, you gave them tremendous career paths. I mean, you know, if someone starts a tech and for a few years later to be to be a CTO, it's a huge leap. But you can only do that if you really care about the people you're working with. If if you invest in those people, and the fact that I still remember these guys, you know, remember their names. It's extraordinary, and it says a great deal about the business that you're running. And this is the kind of business we want to run, where, where, where our clients know our staff's name and remember them and think well of them. Well, and you know what? It's, it's when you were talking about your, your sort of uh, hub managers knowing the implications of the work that they do every day on the customers that they deal with. In my mind, I was immediately thinking about exactly that. You know, we used to create these pods in the business, and that pod looked after a set of customers. And the customers, like you, would get to know the staff and the staff would know the customers. And there was that real sense of ownership and pride and value that the the job that you do has meaning as opposed to you're just doing tickets. And that's just soul destroying. It's all about meaning. If someone comes to work only to get paid, I mean, I I think of that almost as a crime. What am I doing to somebody? I'm eight hours of their day. I'm consuming and only because they have to be there. That, that's a, that's a kind, of, a kind of slave ownership or something. It's awful. Well, it's and also you've got an absolutely. You might be able to get you might be able to get them to hit an SLA. You might be able to get them to deliver a minimum standard, but you will never get amazing customer experience from them. They'll never go above and beyond. Yeah, because that's not the contract. So now, when when I look at reviews of Hubu online, if I go to FIFA or something, I see our staff, the, the the hub managers, the guys in the warehouse, you know, the guys that are picketing outside of that other big company whose name we're not going to mention. I see that, you know, I see those guys' names appear on the reviews. You know, people thank them for doing a fantastic job, and that's why they come to work. They don't come to work to pack boxes. In fact, their jobs are far more varied than that. Anyway, they come to work because other people need them to come, rely on them to do a fantastic job, and reward them when they do. And so that, that, was, that was all an answer to why, you, why I'm working with people, by the way. That question you asked long, long ago. So I don't know what the answer is. All, all I can tell you is I'm happy I am working with lots of people. Look what you've been missing out on. Look what you've been missing yeah, out on all these years. A life wasted. There you go. <laughs> I should have gone into fulfillment 30 years ago. Oh, It would have been different then. It would have been different. It would, yeah, absolutely. And so what, uh, so what happens next? I mean, you've gone from, what, zero to 70 people in 12 months? And you're busy as hell at the minute? We are. So, um, you know, the government made a point of asking uh, uh, e-commerce companies, companies that fulfilled to remain open. So we've done that. Our staff have been phenomenal. We've obviously taken lots of steps to make sure they're safe. But I think it's still a brave thing to keep coming to work during that time. And again, I think they come partly because they love it. I come to the office every day because I, I love it. I'd be driven mad if I stayed at home. And it's grown during this time. Some stranger products. I mean, there's been a change in the kind of products that are selling. Some clients are suffering. Some are suffering because, you know, maybe they they normally import from China and they can't. Or because their stuff just isn't selling. But other stuff has is just flying off the shelves and suddenly, you know, compensating for it. So Garden Shears, one of our biggest sellers now, or one of our clients' biggest sellers, Garden Shears, because people are, you know, stuck in their gardens. Board games, 
home ed stuff, other things that <laughs> <laughs> other other things that people do when they're alone that require or at least are aided by certain objects. They're also flying off the shelves. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say on this, but combs and hairbrushes, yeah, yes, absolutely, yeah. So they're also doing very well. And then you know, um, protective clothing. So obviously that's become a huge area for us. All the sorts of stuff that are either associated with the virus in some way or with people having to spend lots of time at home. But then other stuff keeps going. So we've got, one of our biggest clients is a company called Vintage Cash Cow, which is um, a e-commerce business. It sells vintage stuff in 20 categories. And their growth has continued unabated throughout this. And, you know, they'll sell Victorian dolls or, or old cameras. So for many people, life has just gone on and they've kept, you know, buying the kinds of stuff they're buying and indulging the kinds of hobbies they indulge in. And so what what happens in terms of uh you you said earlier you your distribution center is near Bristol. Do you have to be in multiple locations? Is that on the roadmap? Do you end up do you end up taking over the world? Are you going to be in multiple countries? <laughs> taking over the world is definitely part of the plan. It's it's too tempting not to. I mean, I've been quite realistic about businesses I've held previously. I've done quite well. I've sold them, usually done reasonably well, but I've I've known they're not going to take over the world. But the thing about this is it's a, it's a 1 billion uncontested market in the UK. It's a 7 billion uncontested market in the UK, the US, and Europe. It's uncontested. Business nobody else wants. And then if you, if you price yourself into this market, you're also – the whole SMB market is available to you as well. So now that's another 20-plus billion, which is not uncontested, but, but in which you are probably one of the least expensive options, and you're as good, I would argue, better than everybody else. So it's kind of embarrassing not to be able to turn this into a billion-dollar company on that basis, I think. <laughs> Whether I succeed is another thing. And out of a billion dollars, have you done the maths to, to know how many people you'd have? Uh, staff, it's, it's in the plan. I haven't, got, I haven't looked down to where it is. <laughs> it, gets, it gets crazy. So, I mean, we'll be at two or 300 staff by the end of this year, and we'll be in the thousands by next year. Right now, we're hiring about five new members of staff a week and obviously, the number of new members of staff we hire per week grows as the business grows. So um, right, right now, we're okay here for the next couple of months. We'll need to get another location soon. We don't need to be anywhere else in, in the country because, of course, couriers pick up from us and deliver everywhere in the country. Um, to service our, our UK and global clients, shipping to the rest of the world, which you do for some of them, we don't need to be anywhere but here. But we can deliver lots of value to existing clients by being elsewhere. So if you're in the UK and you sell to Germany, it obviously takes longer to get over there. It costs you more to ship your stuff over there, which means you can't compete on an even footing with people that are in Germany and selling to Germany. So for that reason alone, we need to be in several places throughout Europe and ultimately in the US, at which point we'll then start sales operations in those countries as well and stuff. Uh, okay, so existing customers will take you overseas and then that means you've then, you've then got a hub and then you may as well start talking to local suppliers. Exactly, but there's the other thing that... We will probably do at some point. So our biggest expense is the courier. For us, there's no reason why when we reach critical mass in a particular area, so we're trialing this right now in Bristol, there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing the last mile ourselves. Now, the last mile is a, it's a huge vertical in itself. It's massively invested in by VCs. But they're typically looking at building last mile services that they can then sell on to others. And so obviously it takes lots of investment, long time before it's profitable. For us to introduce last mile, so to basically put a man in the van with a course to follow you know, on his mobile phone, is a cost saving, assuming we've reached critical mass within that area. So there's no reason why we wouldn't have um, warehouses up and down the country in order to ultimately be able to do that last mile piece ourselves as a cost saving, not as a sort of investment in the way the VCs have traditionally done it. So we, you know, we'd be probably the only 
company in the world is integrating vertically integrating last mile as a way of saving costs. Aha. Uh-huh. But your 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 larger competitors are thinking of doing the same thing, aren't they? Well, I mean, Amazon obviously does that already. And Amazon is about to, um, or is it actually just launched a freight business um, selling uh, its courier business into businesses like ours. So competing with DPD and DHL and so on. As far as I know, they're the only company that's doing something like that. But I mean, other people are bound to at some point. But we wouldn't be competing. So we're not building a service we're selling onto anybody else. This is not a last mile service we're going to you know, sell to competitors. This is just last mile as an act of vertical integration to reduce our biggest cost. Yes. I, I was just thinking I was just thinking from their perspective that they have a philosophy, which is that unless you sell a service that you consume yourselves to the outside world, it never gets as good as it needs to be. And so, you ne- so, you know, Amazon Web Services and various other things that they do, their, their own, their fulfillment stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced by that line of reasoning. I think, um, in a sense, everything we sell, we sell to third parties. So, so I guess it's true for me as well, but in a different way. So, so Amazon needs to sell to third parties because otherwise it's just shipping for Amazon, for its shop. We don't have a shop. We're not shipping for our shop. We'd be shipping for our clients anyway. So in a sense, if we add last mile, we don't have to then sell that last mile as a separate service to, say, other fulfillment companies. It's already being sold on to third parties, the third parties that are using it as part of our fulfillment process. And, and I suppose you've got another option, which is you could, uh, you are then a large, you know, even if you don't have enough volume to do it yourselves, you've got enough volume to uh, aggregate purchasing and, and get a better price. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, if at some point we decided we wanted to to work with third parties in order to build up critical mass in a particular area to be able to roll out that last mile piece, principally as an act of vertical integration, but subsidized by these other third parties, we could do that. So there's any number of ways we could do it. And, and the, the the last mile is is something we'll probably plug in gradually as we reach critical mass. It's not like a it's not a core piece that gets rolled out with everything else. What's the number one constraint that you have that you're trying to overcome at the moment? Money is always the, because we're growing fast. So, you know, if you're growing fast and you want to grow faster, you will burn more cash. And I don't need to tell you this. So if we want to grow faster, we need to burn more cash, which means we need to raise more funds. So we just closed the, we just closed a sort of an extended seed round um, with uh, some, some fantastic seed investors and with Maersk, you know, the, the shipping company. So Maersk are also an investor in, in Habu, and obviously we hope will be really useful to us as we look for warehouse space throughout the world and various other ways. But now the plan is to look for a Series A investment, a sizable Series A investment that will allow us to simply scale up. Because the, the whole hub thing, it's modular. So the hub, this micro warehouse, is like a Lego brick of warehousing. So for instance, we could put a 1,000 hubs in, in urban warehouses up and down the country, or we can build blocks of these hubs if we want to. We can put a, a D2C hub, a direct-to-consumer hub, in every port in the world, possibly in a, in a Maersk warehouse, if we could convince them to allow us to. They haven't agreed to anything like that, I should add. <laughs> but you never know your luck. We have to keep trying. So it's an incredibly flexible tool for, for expansion. I'm just, I'm just fascinated because I love finding examples where, uh, you know, WL Gore, when I've spoken to them in the past, they've often said to me that they don't believe in economies of scale. They believe in the diseconomy of scale. Because if you want human beings to feel engaged in their activity and and give you the 40% discretionary effort that's available then you know they have to keep their factory small and they try and keep them under 100 people yep and here's another example you've you've taken you know sort of the opposite 
you know, you've sort of said, well, look, rather than create this industrialized warehouse and treat people like robots, we're actually going to say, look, let's treat people by human beings. And what would that look like? And let's build, let's build a warehouse built on people as opposed to the other way around. It's fascinating. You're exactly right. So it, it, the question is, how do you scale small without breaking small? And that's why the Lego brick is kind of the perfect uh, uh, metaphor for what we're trying to do here. If the self-sufficient hub works, and it does now, we've got loads of them shipping lots of stuff out. If that works, then any number of them work, millions of them work, or or lots of them individually up and down the country functioning as same-day delivery urban warehouses works. So that's exactly what we've tried to do. We've tried to take that someone loving what they do and not break it, which has been the challenge. But the last year is when we've scaled up, and that's been that's really tested that. And the challenge actually has been getting people in that, that don't break it for you. So, you know, because you bring in people that have been in traditional fulfillment because you need some of their expertise. And the first thing they try to do, of course, is to turn you into a traditional fulfillment company. <laughs> well, that's uh, we 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 had exactly that problem at Rackspace. That's why we started hiring graduates because anyone who came from a competitor wanted us to turn us into a competitor. Yep, and brought their denial of service mentality <laughs> with them. So we, we've, it, I, I mean, to be fair to the staff we've got who are fabulous, they have, you know, they've kind of. They've grown into the hub model, come to appreciate it, and now are some of our biggest cheerleaders. So we have, we've got some fantastic staff from traditional fulfillment, but it's a challenge. Is there the, your micro hub managers, is there a, where do they come from? What types of backgrounds are they? So that's been interesting as well, because again, the moment you take on some management from, from sort of fulfillment companies, the first thing they want to do is just to hire lots of big men. Because they just figure it's a sort of it's that kind of job they're going to come in they're going to lift stuff, but there's not very much of that at all. And so I don't know what the numbers are now. I should check, but but it's definitely over fifty percent female um, on the warehouse floor, which is again unique, I think. And it's because it's not really a traditional warehouse job. It's much more like a kind of much more like a a, a, a job in a shop or something of that kind. You know, where you're surrounded by and engaging with product constantly, but you're also engaging with your clients, which isn't hundreds as it might be in a shop. But it, but it could be 20. It could be 20 or 30 clients that you're dealing with every day as well. Um, and so it suits someone that enjoys that the social aspect of that, but has the kind of focus and concentration to be able to do a fairly detailed and changing job. It's not for someone that wants to come in and wants to be treated like a robot all day, pick something up you know, here and put it down over there. But in my experience, people don't start out wanting that. They might just be like that after 10 years in warehousing. Are people working on their own mostly? Well, that was really useful during this whole corona thing, of course. So we naturally distance people. People are in their own hubs. And so they don't have to engage. I mean, you know, they might be six or seven feet away from, from another person with whom they might chat. But they don't have to engage with people, hand stuff to people, take stuff from people all day. Um, so we went to a lot of trouble to, to assist. So we stopped growing a warehouse that wasn't nearly full. And we've moved into an empty warehouse that we weren't going to grow at this point to keep people, to keep that kind of distance. But, but the system naturally lends itself to people owning that space and therefore getting a bit more distance than you would get in a traditional warehouse. And so I, I must, I, perhaps I had uh, misconstrued your space. So I'm, I'm thinking 350 square feet and walls, but the way you describe it there, people, there are no walls. It's just, it's just, it's a chunk of floor space rather than, than inside a cube. Yeah, exactly. So it's a chunk of floor space. It's a, it's a terminal. It's a picking packing station um, with everything you need to, to pack everything that's on your shelves. And it's the shelves. So that's what you own. And do you, I mean, there must be sort of industry metrics in terms of operator efficiency. And do you, do you, track, do you track the same things? 
we can't track the same things because we can't expect a picker to, well, firstly, picking is much faster for us anyway, because the average picker doesn't walk 10 miles a day. It walks under 500 feet a day. So inevitably, we were just vastly quicker at picking. Packing, we would be similar to sort of industry standards, but quite often they would set it up. So there might be three or four people involved in packing if it's a a multi-stage packing process. And that will bring economies. So that will speed up that probably beyond anything we'll ever reach. But then we, we will have the increase on the picking, the decrease on the packing, the massive increase on the support. Because normally, if you phone support, you're speaking to someone that's nowhere near your problem and doesn't understand your problem. And they've got to engage with at least one other person, possibly several, in order to understand the problem before they can engage with it and try to solve it. That's all gone. You talk to the person that can fix it if it's a problem instantly, can act on it if it's a request instantly. So there are so many economies that the occasional diseconomy that comes from not treating human beings like they are machines comes out in the wash to the point where we end up ahead. We know that not because we measure each task against industry averages. We know that because what we look for is how many units ship out of a hub at the end of the day. And does that support the model? The model will give us margins that are about 10 times the size of a traditional fulfillment company's margins. So if we can push enough out of a hub to support that model, we know we're doing vastly better than the industry. Whether we're doing vastly better in any particular metric, it just doesn't matter. Structurally, we're so different, it's hard to measure metric for metric. We don't care. What we know is that we can achieve vastly higher margins, and therefore we must be doing better. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and so what's the culture like? It's really, really good. Uh, so we, we do, we, we're often reaching out to staff to find out what they think and feel, um, and it's, it's always positive. What we get back from everybody else is honesty, openness, caring, taking your job seriously. You know, these are the sorts of things that people feel that we believe in because they feel that it kind of it makes its way down to them from us. And we work very hard to make sure that we, we aren't becoming increasingly distant, which I think is the biggest challenge with culture. So it was really easy when we had a few people. You know, they knew what we expected of them. We expected similar things from ourselves. We'd often work alongside them. We, we still do to this day. That's quite easy. But then you end up with 50 or 60 people. And unless you make a point of, of seeing these people, knowing these people by name, working alongside these people, it becomes harder to transmit culture. So one of the first things we did was hire a head of humans at Habu. Try saying that when you've had a few. It's her, her job, Liz's job, to transmit that culture, to work hard to make sure that everybody understands what the business has been and to try to help us make sure that it remains that way. But the other thing we do because these businesses have a tendency to split into two halves. You end up with an office culture and a warehouse culture. And that we knew was the biggest danger from the very beginning. So everybody that joins the ware, the, the office, in any capacity at all, uh, at whatever level of seniority, has to work in the warehouse first and understand it exactly as if they'd been employed to do that job so that they respect what's happening down there, which is what, they, what we're selling and what we're supporting when we get on the phones from the office. And then we have a flow-to-work model, which apparently is something that comes from P&G, Paul tells me, which means that if ever we get a spike in the warehouse, and obviously you do get spikes from time to time, the office flows to work into the warehouse. So they remain trained up on what goes on in the warehouse, and they become support staff when there's a spike in the warehouse that the warehouse can't meet without, say, extending hours. So constantly intermingling because they work together. So I I was flowing to work last week. I was working downstairs, uh, helping people pick and pack. We all do it. And it means that everybody intermingles. When we take people out to lunch, so that this is a longer answer to your question than you wanted, but I, I kind of think it, it matters how much work goes into doing this. You, you can't shut the warehouse down for the day, so you can't take people out to lunch. 
So what we do is we have the office flow, half the office flow to work into the warehouse. And then we take half the warehouse out for a late lunch with half the office. And then we do the same thing again the following week. So by doing it twice, we get to take everybody out and it's always half office, half warehouse. So everything we do, we make sure that they're, they're a single team and that they're forced to intermingle and, and, and they can't just naturally head off in their sort of office and warehouse directions. So a lot of work and effort goes into trying to maintain it, but it's a challenge. Very good. If you, is there a thing you now know? Is there a piece of knowledge in your head that you wish you'd known at some other point in the past? Um, it's funny. Just before, before, before you started recording, um, you reminded me that one of the last conversations we'd had was about how um, my first son, this is 10 years ago, would not sleep and cried endlessly. And I would have to drive him around for four hours every night. And eventually we moved to Turkey. My wife's Turkish. We moved to Turkey because I was hoping that my in-laws would be able to help us with my, my son's sleeping habits. I wish I'd known that you, you have to let him cry to sleep. <laughs> that it doesn't mean anything. That it's okay. <laughs> that he's not going to die just because he cries you know, through one night. We would try, and then eventually one of us would end up crying, and we'd go in and grab him and bring him out. And eventually we corrupted him, and we ended up moving to Turkey or whatever. I'm not sure what use that's been in business, except that with our second child, we did allow him to cry to sleep. As a consequence, I get to sleep. As a consequence, I'm able to come to work and do a reasonable job. That's, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, what business lesson can be derived from that, but I, maybe a more important lesson for anyone out there that's about to have their first child. <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant and uh along the way you've uh you've read some business books you've picked a few things up um what i have what, i don't i was just gonna say what what books would you recommend that people that people read i don't read a lot of business books um only because i find they're never very dense i just wish people would write much denser business books it seems to me that usually someone's had one great idea and he strings it out for 300 pages I think people should write more business pamphlets, and then I, I consume <laughs> hundreds of them. So, but, so for that reason, I don't read a huge number. But I did just finish, what's his name? Jonathan Haidt's book, which is called The Righteous Mind, which is on a very different subject, but I think it's incredibly valuable from the point of view of, uh, of business. It's about um, how, how we think ethically or morally and, and what sits beneath that, both in terms of the hardware and software. But what it's really about fundamentally is, is actually how we think and how difficult it is to persuade us to think differently and why it's very difficult to persuade us to think differently. Uh, he has a wonderful analogy of an elephant and the rider. And he says that essentially we are the elephant and the rider is our sort of advocate. Now, now so w w when, when we speak, when we engage with other people, it's really the rider talking on behalf of the elephant. But when we, when we react instantly, when, when we decide what we want or feel or like or don't like, it's just the elephant moving in one direction or, or another. And there's nothing the rider can do to pull him back. Elephants are very stu stubborn beasts. So the rider just ends up justifying whatever direction the elephant happened to go in. And that seems to, it seems a great analogy. But most of the time, people don't know what they think until they say it. I certainly don't. And then trying to convince someone that what they've just said is possibly not right is, is quite difficult. Height says that's because he, it's not really him thinking it. It's not the rider. It's the elephant, and it's the rider's job to make sure the elephant never has to change his mind. Well, also, it, uh, there's this thing where you know you challenge somebody suggesting that they're wrong, and what they do is they double down to prove that the wrong thing that they were they they said or they thought is actually true. And you just can't. You just it's very difficult to persuade people with facts. You, there has to be. 
It's it's a huge challenge. Exactly. No, that's exactly. And 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 so Haidt talks about why that is the case. But the lesson, which I think is clearly you've you've derived that lesson yourself from being you know in life and in business, and as a fire, it was quite it was quite nice to see Haidt sum it up, is that that actually you often can't do it reasonably, and that it's more about and this comes down to managing people. It's often more about emotions. You're not managing someone by simply telling them this is the right way, and therefore that's that's why you must do it. You've got to get everyone's buy-in. Everyone in the business that you want to do something on behalf of the business, which is everyone, you've got to get their emotional commitment to it, their emotional buy-in. And Haidt simply talks inadvertently, not deliberately, because that's not his subject matter, about why that is the case. And so I thought that was fascinating. Though it's, it's not really a business book at all, but um, it is a great book. It fits perfectly with the conversation we've been having about your employees uh, feeling emotionally engaged in the work that they do for the cust- your customers and, uh, and your business. No, it's all about that. And it's it's a really big book, but it's packed with thousands of ideas and tons of research. So you can forgive him you know, that it goes on for 400 pages or whatever. But yeah, no, if, if anyone can recommend any great business pamphlets, that I'd love to read those. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Martin, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dom. It's really good to see you again. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.